Turn to the book of Hebrews. As you're turning there, I'm going to share with you where we're about to go in prayer. And I, before I share with you the plan, or at least I kind of where we're going in prayer anyway, I want to welcome those who've joined us this morning for the first time, or maybe this is your first mobile worship. We do this a couple times in the fall and a couple times in the spring, and uh, it's sort of a different Sunday, and I think it has blessings on many levels. First of all, we have all the kids in with us. That's not typical of every Sunday, and it makes for a little different volume level. It makes for some distractions that may not be there on a typical Sunday, but I think it's, it's good for the kids because they see that they're part of something, even if they're not engaging the sermon necessarily. Little wee ones see that they're caught up in this journey that a group of people are on called the church. And also, we as families and parents get to look over at rows full of kids and see this is our people, and this is tomorrow's church that we're worshiping with. So it, it's a blessing on a couple different levels. Now, I know volume-wise and distraction-wise, it's a little different those of you who have kids, you know how to tune out the, um, the noise. Those of you who don't, you'll learn someday, likely. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to pray for kids right now, pray for sort of a supernatural attentiveness or supernatural quietness. Um, and I'm going to pray for the rest of us that we can engage this rightly. I'm also going to pray for a couple of teachers that are teachers here at this school. I want to pray for Kyle Treadwell. And I want to pray for Jordan. Jordan and his wife, I don't think they're here this morning, but they visited with us previously on a couple of Sundays. They just moved to Greenville and are looking for a church home. So we're praying that they find where God wants them and praying that they're used here at at GHS. I'm praying for Kyle. I'm praying for Randy. Uh, Randy works with the district, so Randy's connected to what goes on in this building um, to some degree. Uh, We're praying for Jake Adell and praying for Justin Wade, students at this school, that they'll be salty and bright and aromatic and that they'll be uh, faithful to be the people of God here at GHS. And then we're going to pray for the other believers here at this school and pray for our context. So let's begin in prayer. Lord, first I want to pray for little ones. Just uh, I know that you can influence the heart and calm children in a way that even a parent can't. And we pray for just an attentiveness uh, or a quietness that's beyond any one of these kids. I pray that we can engage your word rightly. Lord, I pray that these little ones will see that they are part of a journey with the people through a wilderness, this side of glory. And they'll see that this is um, a sweet journey and a daily or weekly journey and that they'll be caught up in that even at a young age. Lord, I want to pray also for our context. I pray kind of in a broader context for this side of town and for believers on this side of town and for churches around here like Mineral Heights, like Aldersgate, Ridgecrest. I'm sure I'm missing some, but peoples that gather on this side of town weekly, I pray that they'll be faithful. Those who live on this this side of town, I pray they'll be faithful to enjoy you out loud. Pray for those who are students at this school or teachers at this school like Kyle and Jordan, students like Jake and Justin. Lord, I pray for faithfulness. And I pray that whatever the cost, that they'll be salty and bright and aromatic and true and faithful in this 
school during the week as they are learning and engaging, playing sports or teaching, band or choral, whatever it might be. We pray that all of it will be a sweet aroma to you and it will be worship. Lord, we pray for the other believers that are part of this school as teachers and students. We pray for faithfulness. Lord, we pray that this, in some way, that there will be a light in this school, in this context. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning. I just pray that you'll bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're in the book of Hebrews, as we have been the last few weeks. And this morning, in one Sunday, we're going to complete chapter 1. Now, those of you who've been on the journey with us memorizing as we go, you may be a little bit concerned about that. I'll, I'll let you know that I don't have the rest of chapter 1 memorized, but you're going to have the next couple of weeks to catch up. So that's good news. Well, I'm going to climb right in. We're going to read the, uh, the chapter in its entirety, and then we're going to come back, look at a few things having to do with something I've never preached on, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on. It's angels. And then we're going to come back to the text and sort of synthesize all of it. So let's start with our passage. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's where we're focusing from this verse on through the rest of the chapter this morning. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, I've asked some questions of this text. And I, as much as a sermon is exposing a passage, in some ways it's teaching you to study as well. So here's some questions that I've been asking as I've been preparing for this sermon. As I'm reading this, the rest of this chapter is what in the world is up with angels? Why are angels getting all this airtime? What's the big deal? Are they in some way making too much of angels? Is this in response to something that's sort of out of sorts? How, how might we be in danger of the same? 
Why is it important that they know that Jesus is better than the angels? And what are the implications if they think Jesus is equal to or lesser than angels? Now, I throw those questions out there, and I'll tell you right now, we're not going to answer every single one of them. Some of them will be answered by implication. Other, others will be answered specifically. But I want to show you, it's the sort of questions that you need to ask of a text to make it come alive. Okay. Before we climb into Hebrews, unpacking this passage, I want to share with you some miscellaneous angel stuff. It's a nice term for it. It's official, and I got that right from a theology book. Miscellaneous angel stuff. Some passages just from the New Testament sort of drawing out some things that we can know for sure about angels. An angel appeared to a man named Zechariah announcing the birth of his son-to-be, John the Baptist. John the B, as we often refer to him, we could say that he had a lowercase b when he's a baby. But this is the passage having to do with that passage or that, that encounter. Zechariah was troubled when he saw this angel. And here's what the angel said. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Just from this one passage, we can draw out some things right off the bat. We can know that at least this guy has, an, has a name. At least this angel is named Gabriel. We can know at least this angel stands in the presence of God. He says so. We can know also that at least this angel, we'll see others as well, are sent to speak and bring good news. And we also know that at least this one has some sort of power to pronounce Zechariah mute until John the Baptist is born. This same angel, Gabriel, shows up and appears to Mary at a later date and tells Mary that she will bear a child, specifically the Christ child. Again, really good news coming from Gabriel. Gabriel may be sort of a good news angel. We don't know. But at least two occasions he shows up bearing good news. <clears throat> Another angel shows up to a man named Joseph in a dream. Three different dreams on three different occasions specifically. We don't know his name, but here's some of the details. Joseph shows up in a dream and... Or, angel shows up in a dream and tells Joseph that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit... And to marry her anyway, and to name him Jesus. Later, an angel, we don't know if it's the same one, shows up and tells Joseph to go to Egypt because Herod's killing baby boys. And then at a later date, an angel, possibly the same, shows up in a dream to Joseph and tells Joseph, okay, it's time you can go home, Herod is dead. So at least in this occasion, this angel or this group of angels we see protecting the Christ child and protecting God's people. And they can, or at least could at this point, appear in a dream. It's crazy that these guys, these critters, angels, are not apparently at this point not contained to some of the mediums that we're contained to, like flesh or written messages. They can show up in dream state. Here's another occasion, Luke chapter 22. Just listen. In fact, this morning, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you where I want you to turn. 
And you can jot these passages down. Not keeping anything from you. I want to conserve your listening and turning energy. This will be a shorter sermon this morning, but I'll give you some direction of where I want you to go. Luke chapter 22, just listen. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now, how in the world an angel is going to strengthen the one who now sits at the Father's right hand? I don't have a clue. We don't have any insight into what went on there. I can't help but wonder if this angel is reminding him of his Father's love. I can't help but wonder if this angel is reminding him of the glory in store when his glory is restored to his pre-incarnate glory and he's seated at the Father's right hand. We don't know. All we know is that an angel shows up and strengthens Jesus. Here's another occasion, Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And then he promptly sat down on it. His, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. We could add to some of the data that we've collected on angels so far, like they're sent to speak and bring good news. They're sent to protect, at least in some occasions, the Christ child and God's people. We could add that they're apparently strong, or at least this one is. He's able to move a stone that nobody else can move, and then they can sit down, which that just makes me laugh. I don't know why. Just why in the world would he sit? Is he tuckered? Is he sitting in victory? And what's he sitting on? I mean, I just don't understand the anatomy of an angel. It just kind of makes me laugh. But apparently they're strong, and apparently they can sit down on their behinds. And their appearances, apparently, can be pretty spectacular. And in fact, often are. And they left these men like they were dead men, passed out. Their appearances can be even frightening. And you have to wonder, is their splendor a reflection or a radiance. More on that in small group. Now, I do want you to turn here, Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18. We're just kind of looking at a sampling of angel passages. This is one I want you to look, or I want you to see because there's some context that's important. It's not a central teaching of the morning, but it's contextually, I think it's important. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him, and, and calling to him a child, he put this child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... Okay, the child is an illustration of how a believer is to become. A disciple of Christ is to become. He's to become childlike. Unless you become childlike, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, whoever receives one such child... 
Contextually, that sounds like a believer who's believing in childlike faith and trust, not just children. The child is the, is the, the illustration. Whoever's believing like a child, whoever receives one such believer in my name receives me. But whoever causes one such believer who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now look at verse 10. Still in the context of this little childlike believer. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now I have to confess to you, he may be shifting gears right here to talk about little kids. It seems contextually he's speaking about believers. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. I'm just going to confess to you that is a weird reference. For those of you who've always believed in this guardian angel sort of thing, that would make a lot of sense. But it seems contextually, coupled with what we're going to see here in Hebrews, that angels have a purpose of serving the saints childlike believers. I was kind of laughing about this over a a dinner that we had the other night with some of our staff, (laughs) and we were talking about just how weird the notion it would be of having an angel that's dedicated to you, and do you promote out of it as some, or does he promote out when you get older? We were just kind of laughing about the idea because it's just so foreign and strange, and I made the comment that mine is probably in rehab from my childhood going through some sort of treatment and Tiffany Fiesel said that he was flying into a corner hitting the wall after my childhood. I definitely don't want to make light of this image but what you want to see here is a connection with Hebrews that it seems to be that angels serve a purpose too of ministering to and serving the saints. That's the point that's made here. Now, A few chapters later in Matthew chapter 24. You can turn there if you want since we're close. More data on angels. This is a big one to me. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is the end of the age imagery. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Apparently angels are also involved in gathering up the saints. You couple this with Matthew chapter 13, the the parable of the wheat and the tares, and you find that, oh, they're also involved in gathering up those who aren't the saints. They're involved in gathering up those who don't believe in Christ by faith, and they throw them into a lake of fire. I'm going to say right now, I have to confess to you, I feel a little jokey about angels. If you got my email this week about Touched by an Angel, the cheesiest show in history, and if any of you are offended by that, I apologize. I've just had so many laughs. I've razzed... uh, Karen Bench. I asked Karen if she would give a testimony about how Touched by an Angel had touched her over the years. (laughs) She kind of halfway laughed like she really did like that show, but that she didn't want to admit it. I feel a little bit jokey about angels, but when I hear that role that they're gathering up the elect from the four corners, I'm going, oh, okay, I don't want to make fun of angels. 
I confess to you, I feel a little bit lighthearted, but when I engage passages like that, I go, oh man, that's a pretty important task. Wouldn't you agree? Next, Hebrews chapter 13. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 13. Two more passages just looking at interesting data. This one is a little bit creepy. I have to confess. Hebrews chapter 13 says, this is a passage that's just sort of um, encouragement of how to live out your faith. Just goes through kind of a list of things to do as the people of God. Let brotherly love continue. I'd like to see that's the top of the list. Secondly, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's cool. But then he says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's a little odd to me. It's a little strange to think that as you care for a stranger or tend to somebody who's hungry or needs a tank of gas or needs an overnight stay that you may be tending to one of these critters called angels. It's weird. It appears that angels could be anything or anyone. Later on in our passage this morning in Hebrews, you're going to see that they could be a gust of wind. They could be a flame of fire. Lastly, Revelation chapter 2, and then we're going to unpack our Hebrews passage quickly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. There are seven churches that sort of get a report card from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And those report cards are written to their angels. Now, I have to tell you right now, angel also means messenger. So that could be report cards written to their preacher or elder. But then that would be sort of weird if there's only one because we trust and believe that these churches have plural leadership, which seems to be taught in the rest of our Bible. This weird concept of an angel having some sort of involvement in the local church seems to be developed here at least to some degree. This is possibly some of these beings, these critters that we're talking about that are dedicated to watch over the church. Now, this is a sampling of what I feel like are interesting things about angels. Stuff that I personally have never really considered, never really examined, and stuff that I bet that you really hadn't been tuned into. But now, let me tell you why I did that. Because the Hebrew church would have known much, if not far more, about angels than we do. The Hellenistic Jews were well in tune with angels. And a big part of the reason is because our entire Old Testament is saturated with events having to do with angels. So what I've done in some ways, as much as just sort of collecting interesting things about angels, some of those things that we collected, um, that they speak and bring good news, they protect the Christ child and God's people, they're strong, their appearances can be pretty spectacular, they're involved in gathering up the elect, 
In some ways, what I've done is developed for us a higher view, in my case, honestly, a more sober view of the role of angels. And in doing that, I'm taking us to a place where the Hebrews would have already been. And now what the Hebrews preacher does is he says, essentially, you guys think a lot of angels. Let me show you how Jesus is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In some ways, he takes what's already true for them that hopefully is true for us after a few data collecting points and says, let me show you how Jesus is better. If you think a lot of angels, let me show you how he's better. Now, we're back in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And what we're going to do in these next few minutes, and let me tell you, it's going to be fast. So you, if you're wrestling a kid and you're like, man, uh, is this going to be like an hour and 15-minute sermon like Psalm 110? No. Exhale. We're going to do it fast, but we're going to do it faithfully. Starting in verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This phrase, as much superior to angels, is not um, a change or degree, but in kind. It's not having to do with degree of greatness, but in altogether difference of kind. He's saying that Jesus is a whole other sort than angels. He's not more superior, more better, more awesome. He's of a whole nother kind. This is a qualitative reference, not a quantitative reference. And the same is true for this phrase, more excellent than theirs. His name is more excellent. And the name that he's pointing to right here is a name that we typically don't think of, Jesus, but the name specifically is Son. Some of you who have a sweet relationship with your dads, men, boys. Some of you know how your heart sings when your father comes to you and puts it, put his arms around you and says, come here, son. Or he says, well done, son. Man, that ministers to you because that is good medicine. And that's a, a, a term of affection and a term of closeness. You can think about the, the sky opening up at Jesus' baptism and, and God speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the name we're talking about here, the name son. Now, beginning in verse 5 is a series of contrasts between angels and Jesus. And specifically, we're going to look at it from the direction of angels, what they are and what they aren't. Starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son. Today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He never said to any angel calling him begotten son. He never spoke with that kind of language with any angel. Now, you need to know that he spoke on occasion about the collective bunch of the angels as the sons of God. Job chapter 1 verse 6 is an example. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, you could insert angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. You need to know he might have referred to them collectively as the sons of God, but he's never referred to any angel as his only begotten son. 
Angels are not begotten sons, and they are not called by that name. Come here, son, period. Now, verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's a familiar night to us likely. You've heard the, the story read a thousand times, but I want us to connect it to this truth. You want to understand what, what angels primarily do? They worship. Listen to this fulfillment of this passage. This is from Psalm 97, that Hebrew 6 reference. This is from Psalm 97. Here's the night that it was fulfilled. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they're filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. The angels right there are doing what angels were made to do. Worship God. The night sky is full of worship on the night of his birth just as Psalm 97 said it would be, and just as the Hebrews writer refers back to. And in verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, here's something I want you to understand about angels. Angels can be a flame of fire like they were in the burning bush speaking to Moses. God speaks through the burning bush, but the passage tells us there it's the angel of the Lord in that bush creating that flame that did not consume the bush. Angels can just as easy be a stranger that you entertain as they can be a wind or a flame, and God can change them from one moment to the next. They are a term that I want you to give a new thought to. And that's it. It's a new parking place for a thought. They are mutable. That means changeable. I like it better because it's a different thought, a different word for a different important thought. Angels are changeable. In this moment, I want you to show up in person. In that moment, I want you to show up in a dream. In this moment, I want you to show up in a burning bush. In that moment, I want you to show up in a windburst. Angels are mutable. And then in verse 8, but the son of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of brightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's the contrast. Jesus has an eternal throne and a ruling scepter. His throne is durable. His throne is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, as opposed to angels who are mutable, is immutable. He does not change. And he has anointed his son with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. This is my only begotten son in whom I am well pleased. 
Angels are not begotten sons. Angels are not called son. Angels are mutable, and angels are critters, and they are not anointed with the oil of gladness. Angels are not forever and ever sort of beings, as Christ is and will always be. Now in verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is spoken of Christ, the Son. You, Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but guess what? You remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is reinforcing the last two passages, but it te teaches us even more. See, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews, they had a very distinct theology believing that angels were present at creation and that they had a key part in the government of the universe. And there are passages that indicate that. But this preacher wants these believers to see that Christ is creator. He is ultimate creator. I'm going to share a passage with you from Job. I want you to jot it down. I don't want you to turn there because I'm going to turn there quickly. Job chapter 38, verse 4. This is the Lord answering Job. He says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, there they are, shouted for joy. Hellenistic Jews, this writer, I want to put it in perspective for you. These angels that you potentially think a whole lot of, they were the pep squad, they were the cheerleaders. It was Jesus that spoke all that into existence. He was effective creator, not an angel. And he uses the imagery to teach the difference. He uses the image of the temporariness of a garment. Some of you know what can happen to your favorite jacket. Any of y'all ever own a members-only jacket? Anybody want to confess? I saw a few hands come up for the bold. I see one in the back. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that nobody's wearing them these days. Maybe for a few reasons. Maybe because they're tattered, but maybe because they're lame and out of date. Now, chances are you should keep them because they'll likely come back into fashion. But the reality is robes and garments are temporary on many levels. Anybody ever own parachute pants? I haven't seen anybody wearing those in a while. Garments are ever-changing. Not only do they come in and out of style, but they can be stained, they can tear, and they need to be mended, and they can become frayed, and they sure can become dated and tired, as opposed to Jesus, who is the same. As opposed to Jesus, who is eternal, seated on a durable throne. That's the imagery that's being used here. Clothes grow tired and frayed and dated and they're rolled up and put away till you move or have a garage sale or an ugly sweater contest. But the sun remains. Never frayed, never out of fashion, durable forever and ever and ever. Now, 
on this point, I don't know if angels age and decay. We don't have any biblical image that suggests that they age and decay. But I will tell you this, angels are part of the created order as opposed to Christ who is creature, creator. Angels are critters. I don't know if they decay, but I have to assume if they're part of this creation that there is some degradation going on or at least change here, mutability. A wind, a flame of fire, or a stranger entertained. And then in verse 13, back in Hebrews chapter 1, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He never said that to an angel. The spot at his right hand is for Jesus alone. Then in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He asked the question like we're supposed to go, well, yeah. Duh. It's an implied yes. Of course, they're just ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Here, childlike disciples of Matthew chapter 18. Angels clearly have a role in the redemptive story. And I'm going to tell you what, I have to confess to you, I'm seeing a whole lot more important role. But that role is not at the Father's right hand. That role is not as ruler. It's as servant. They bring good news. They watch over God's people. They become a wind or a flame or whatever or whoever God wants them to be. They gather up the saints from the four corners. They watch over the church, it appears, and they protect God's people from harm, all at God's direction. Now, I'm going to close this message with four passages. I'll share with you what they are. If you'd like to turn to them, you can turn there. I would encourage that for these four passages because this is the so what, and it'll be brief but it'd be important. The so what? This hadn't just been nifty angel Sunday. There are four important points to make here. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Everybody's been sitting there waiting for me to tell you where to turn. Revelation chapter 19. Beginning in verse 9. And the angel said to me, this is John speaking, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that, John. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. A proper angel, an angel of light, is not going to let anybody worship him. Don't you dare worship me. And God's people should not worship angels. I don't care if one shows up in his splendor. Seeing the fact that John, who walked with Jesus, could end up falling on his knees and start to worship one, you better realize it could happen to you. 
don't worship angels, period. Secondly, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. I told you these would be fast, but they're important. 1 Corinthians 6. Beginning in verse 1. When one of you, speaking, writing to a church, so think within the church context, the people of God, when one of you has a grievance against another, a believer has a grievance against another believer, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's getting on people for suing each other in the church. Don't take this to court without taking it first to your elders and to your church where they can sort this out. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, he says? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? You want to put angels in perspective? Let me tell you something. First of all, you don't worship them. And second of all, realize that the saints are going to judge the angels someday. Now, that's a head-scratcher. We don't have to look for details and how that's going to work. There aren't any details provided, but it's enough detail there to know that it should put them in their place. They'll be judged by us someday at the end of the age, in the life to come, it says. Third, 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Man, this is my favorite right here, boy. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. David, who's writing Psalm 110 or writing Psalm 2, he's thinking, man, I don't even have a clue what's really being said here. I have some sense but I don't really have full insight into what's going on here. All these other prophets that wrote about things yet to come, they didn't have a full insight into it. They're inquiring to what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They're looking for Jesus and trying to sort this whole thing out. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That's New Testament saints. It was revealed to the prophets... You're not serving Old Testament saints. You're serving the New Testament saints who are going to come into a full understanding of who Christ is, when he showed up, what he did, and what the implications are. It's revealed to them that they're serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You want to put angels into perspective? Angels are jealous of what we have. Angels are jealous to look into the context and the whole story that we have access to right here as the people of God. Now, how on earth an angel can exist in the presence of God and not have full picture, I don't know. But I trust that passage that we have something that angels don't even have. And they're important critters, and we should have a high view of them. But man, we need to know angels shall not be worshipped. We'll judge them in the life to come. And third, angels are jealous of what we have. And the last thing, and this is going to tie it up, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 
Colossians chapter 1, actually chapter 2, verse 18. As you're turning there, let me tell you, apparently there was something going on in the Colossian church where somebody was worshiping angels. So if you think it's not a potential, read your text. I mean, we're talking a baby church, early church. Some of these folks may have seen Christ resurrected. We don't know that for sure. But we're talking about the church that Paul planted. Paul planted this church, and apparently these guys, someone has been leading them astray, and they're worshiping angels. Listen to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. Don't let anybody steer you astray, and don't be astray yourself in what it is, essentially. When you get into angels too much, it's sensuality. You're getting into the splendid. I, I, I read an illustration. You get into the splendid packaging. Let me put it to you that way. I read a, uh, I'm reading a book right now by N.T. Wright called Hebrews for Everyone. And he uses the illustration that was just so good. And I bet parents, you can relate to this. You know, you save up for that perfect Christmas gift for your little two-year-old. We're just, we're going to get him exactly what he, I think he wants. I don't know, it's hard to tell. He's two. And depending on what he wants at what time. I think we got it nailed down though. And we're spending money and we're getting just the right gift. And we wrap it in this nice wrapping paper in this awesome box. And then Christmas morning he rips it open. And then he pulls it out and he looks at it. And then for the next couple of hours, he's sitting there playing with the box and the packaging and the paper. If God's people get focused on angels, that's like focusing on the box and the paper and the wrapping. And the encouragement here is hold fast to the head. Christ is the gift inside. It doesn't have to be angels. We can have another version of something that we get into. It's other than Christ. When Christ doesn't become enough, you can enjoy any kind of packaging. The point here for God's people is that Christ has to be and should be enough. Hold fast to the head. He's superior. His name is more excellent. Now, that's the sermon. I have one last thought for our worship team. Every time our different groups of people lead, I'm blown away by the gifting that we have in this body, worship and song. Blown away. And every time it seems so fresh and it seems so new, like you're singing newly, and I affirm you in that worship teams. The last point that I have for you this morning is connecting to something that I haven't even engaged yet here, and it's going to take about 20 seconds. This Hebrews preacher uses seven references to show how Jesus is better than angels. There's seven references to Psalms and one reference to 2 Samuel. What these seven references have in common is they all come from the Greek Christian and the Jewish Christian's songbook. Those passages come from their, what's called their Psalter. 
And it blew my mind that this preacher had such a resource because the worship team had built into the people of God in this context so much truth that he could just refer to their worship songs and say, let me show you how Jesus is better. Let me show you how Jesus is better. Let me show you how Jesus is better. Their secondhand language for this people, these songs that they sang. So my encouragement to our worship teams is continue to pursue excellence in truth. And you've done it for eight years. Keep it up. You're building a library of context that will come out and has come out in our sermons. Remember that song we sing? Remember this song we sing? Remember this line? Remember that line? That's how important your job is. Keep it up. Sing newly. Write songs that are true. Man, please, please pour excellence into it. I love musical excellence. But music is servant to truth. When you write songs that are true, you build those into our people and they become the context for preaching and the context for how you view the world. Man, keep it up, worship teams. I'm thankful when this church is thankful. I'm going to pray, and now we're going to, then we're going to continue in our uh, offertory and in song and in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Dear God, I pray that you will guard us from ever enjoying the packaging more than we enjoy this sweet and crazy, awesome gift of Jesus. Lord, in whatever way we could potentially be caught up in the sensational pray that you will give us perspective into the simple and true awesomeness of Christ. That we will be satisfied with him. That he will be enough for us. Lord, I'm thankful for these images that you've given us this morning of these servants that serve for you and serve us. Who give us good news. Who protect us. Who gather us up at the end of the age and gather those who aren't among us. Lord, I'm so thankful that you're at work, that you use these beings to further your kingdom. And I'm thankful this morning that we've had a chance to put those beings in perspective, that Jesus is far superior, that he is more excellent than any angel that could show up here this moment and just scare us all to death, that Jesus is better. This morning as we gather at Greenville High School, we enjoy Jesus as far superior and as more excellent. We pray these things in his excellent name. Amen. The dynamics are a little bit different in a, in a different setting, and uh, it will be for our Lord's Supper as well this morning. We're about to close by having a time of families uh, coming in and uh, if you're, here's an individual and you see someone, families grab them, y'all come, groups of people, whatever, and we're going to uh, take the supper. What we're going to do is if you'll use these two aisles right here to come down, uh, get the supper, and then peel back around and pray together. Take the supper together. Remember the supper is for believers. So if you have some children who are believers, they can have it. If some of your children aren't believing, you use it as a teaching time and explain some of the things about Christ that you have heard and learned this morning. And, as, and the band's going to uh, play. Y'all worship together. And then as y'all finish, y'all can just exit out the back uh, and we'll be done for the morning. Y'all have done wonderful this morning. We counted a really 
big privilege to, to worship together. As you leave, there are some jars in the back, and it just says helping families. And those are actually for helping families. So we tried to label them, keep it real easy. Our student uh, ministry and their families have put those together as we're going into the holiday season to be able to offset costs for people who need it. And so take those, fill them up with, uh, with as much as you can and bring them back up to the building and we'll utilize that for that reason. Turn to Matthew 26 briefly as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verse 26, we see Jesus actually instituting the Lord's Supper. So think about the Jesus we've heard about this morning who is powerful and who has strength and might and who knows the mind of the Lord. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for uh, many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As you come up as families and as groups, Consider a few realities concerning the Lord's Supper briefly. First, Christ blesses the elements. By the blessing of Christ, this common bread, common like what we have up here, was changed into a holy use. It was set apart to be used to bring our hearts and our minds near and aware of the realities of Christ. So I encourage you, ask Christ's blessing Remember, when you go and you, when you eat food, you don't bless the food. Jesus blesses the food. You ask him to bless the food. So you don't do this and you bless the food somehow. You ask Christ to bless the food. And so I encourage you to do that as you come forward and take the supper. Ask Christ's blessing as you come. Ask that he would take something very ordinary and very common and use it to awaken our souls to eternal realities. Bread is satisfying. Consider Christ. Thomas Watson said, If a man be hungry and you bring him flowers or pictures, they do not satisfy. But bread does fully satisfy. So Jesus Christ, the bread of the soul, satisfies. He satisfies the eye with beauty, the heart with sweetness, and the conscience with with peace. Consider also that bread is strengthening. So Christ, the bread of the soul, transmits strength. He strengthens us against temptations. And he gives strength for doing and suffering work. So in the supper, as you come this morning, and in the hearing of the preached word, which we just experienced, we are actually blessed, satisfied, and strengthened. You're going to come down these aisles, take the supper, and exit out the back. Let's pray. Lord, we count it a privilege. As we take this supper, I pray that we would realize we are, we are using very common elements uh, in a way that is unique because you, have, you, you make the supper holy. You set it aside to draw us into greater, more eternal realities. Lord, as we, as we take this supper, I pray that we would consider Christ, the one who is superior to angels. He's different altogether. He is the Son. He is begotten. 
Lord, we are a blessed people to consider that we do have angels ministering to us in some way, and then even more superior than that, that we have Christ, our Savior, our righteousness. As we come and take this supper, help us to do so with sober minds, very much aware that there is no righteousness outside of Christ. There is no communion with God outside of Christ. And in Christ, we are blessed, we are strengthened, and we are satisfied. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.